0: All right, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 26. Um, I'm going to ask for your patience tonight. I'm uh, still recovering. Everybody's getting this annual thing, and it certainly is for me. And uh, so keep me in prayer. I'm I'm feeling better, but uh, that is uh, proportionate, I think. So we left off with Paul in the arena there at Caesarea before Agrippa and Festus. And he's giving his account and the testimony of Jesus Christ and what the Lord had sent him to do and how God had called him into the ministry and what his purpose was and reaching the Gentiles and, and, and shining light of the word of God on the Gentile people. And so he comes here to verse 21, and he says, For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple, and went about to kill me, having therefore obtained help from God. If you're taking notes, you need to make note of that. Having therefore obtained help from God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to the small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. Paul declares here in, in verse 22 that the Lord had intervened. And he wouldn't have even been standing there, he said, had the Lord not intervened. And you have to remember, it was the Roman soldiers who had actually rescued Paul. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that means. Because so often we look for the helping hand of God in supernatural ways. And what I, what I, what I mean by that is that so often we miss understand that God operates in supernatural ways because he does it so naturally. And people today, especially within Christendom, there's a great number of people who are looking for the whoop de do. You know, they, they can't accept the spiritualness or the extraordinariness of God, the supernatural, if you will, unless it's connected with something that seems to be, well, crazy, you know, out of the ordinary. But God often operates very naturally when he is operating supernaturally. In reality, we need to be able to recognize this is what Paul is saying. Paul says, look, if it wasn't for the Lord's hand, I wouldn't even be standing here today. Well, it was the Roman soldiers which had saved him. The Romans had went in there, and they were the ones who rescued him from the crazy Jews and who were rising up and screaming and wanted to tear him apart. But who sent the Romans? See, it's the Lord. And it, but it looks so natural, you see. This is what I want you to get. Because we often want to see this flamboyancy. Does that make sense to you? You know, Pastor Chuck Smith wrote a book years ago. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to read it. It's called Charismatic versus Charismaniac. And I love the book because I'm charismatic. Why? Because the Bible is charismatic. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We operate within the gifts of the Spirit. But yet in Christendom today, many go way beyond. And you have to question whether or not it's the Spirit of God or is it just whoop de doo you know. And so people look for that stuff. But I think God, and I think we need to understand that God does operate very naturally within the supernatural. And we need to be able to see the Lord in everything. And as we get further into, the, into our study tonight, you're going to see that. That it's God's constantly there. I'm convinced of that. We used to sing a song years ago. He's the God of happenstance. I like that, because there really is no happenstance, there really isn't to a believer. Everything, all things work together for the good to them who love the Lord, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so there really is no happenstance, but even if there was, he's the God of happenstance. He's the one who's making it happen. Why? Because he is sovereign. Here in verse 22, Paul states that he had been witnessing to the small and the great. Yet, in so doing, he had added nothing. And I like that. He added nothing to the scriptures. He said all he was preaching was that which the prophets and Moses did preach before him. I love that. You know, there's three places in the Bible that says that you shall not add to nor take away from the word of God. One of them says, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. A warning. One in the beginning, one in the middle, in Psalms, and one in Revelation. So it's in the beginning of the word, it's in the middle of the word, it's at the end of the word. Don't do it. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Because it's the story of His glory. We want to have the whole picture of Christ. You don't need to add to it because it's magnificent the way it is. It's extraordinary. It's supernatural. We don't need to add anything to it. We don't have to, by cunning devices and cleverness of speech, you see, bring people to know Jesus Christ. Just read the Scriptures. Just convey the truth of the Word. And if it's being conveyed accurately, people will come to know Christ. Paul even says, we didn't follow cunningly devised things. We didn't do that. Didn't have to. And he tells this to Festus and to Agrippa. I didn't say anything but what was already preached by the prophets and Moses. I just simply related it. And I told him that. And I, I love that. But it's because today, today, we're not living in such a time. The Word of God... Being taught simply and, and, and accurately is a rare commodity, my friends. It's a rare commodity. So often we want stuff. We want. To, I, I was listening. I won't even mention the preacher, but I, I, I heard it the other day. And it's not in my notes, but he was on there saying some crazy stuff. And, 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 the, and he's sitting in a church of just thousands of people. And you're going, nobody's got a Bible open. And he's spewing stuff that just doctrinally was crazy. You know, to him it must have made sense, but it certainly was not scriptural. But we're going to see as we get into our study tonight. Paul was a study. He was a guy who understood the Scriptures, and he studied it uh, profusely. Look at verse 23. And what was he proclaiming as far as the prophets and Moses? That Christ should suffer. That he should be the first and should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. Paul preached that the Messiah had come. And not only that the Messiah had come, but that it was necessary that the Messiah should suffer. And this was something that really upset the Jews. A lot of people don't understand why they didn't accept Christ when he came the first time. The reason that they had a hard time accepting Jesus as the Messiah, and due to this day, is because he's a suffering Messiah. He suffered. See, when the Jews, when they saw, when they, the way they looked at the, at the Messiah's coming, they looked at it as a magnificent coming. A conquering king. That's what they were waiting for. They were waiting for somebody to conquer the Romans, you see, and reestablish his kingdom upon the earth at that time. A Jewish kingdom, I mean, obviously. That's what they were wanting. But that's not what Paul was preaching. What Paul preached was that Messiah had the, indeed came, according to Moses and the prophets, but that when he came, he came and he suffered. And this was something that set the Jews against him right away. Why? Because it was contrary to what they wanted to believe. I mean, you remember when we started the book of Acts even. You know, they, even the disciples, even after Jesus had risen from the dead, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? They, it's a hard thing for the Jews to shake, gang. It really is. Even to this day, it's hard for them to shake. And a lot of them reject Jesus Christ because of it. Because he was a suffering Messiah. He suffered. They just don't understand why. That's why Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world. But it's coming. It's coming. And it's coming soon. I really believe that with my whole heart. The Jews tended to take the passages of the Torah that spoke about the kingdom and the glory and the honor of God, and they took those very literally. But the passages that spoke of the suffering of the Messiah when he came, they spiritualized those. So when Paul began to speak of the suffering, they, they rejected it. Why? Because they had spiritualized those, not unlike many Christians today who take certain doctrines of the, of the Scriptures and they spiritualize them, even dealing with the second coming of Christ. Many of them look at the Scriptures and they don't see the physical coming of Jesus Christ. They say, well, you see, when the church is glorified on the earth, you know, then Christ will come, and in a semblance, you see, it'll be, it'll be really Christ's second coming within the glorified church. And they spiritualize the verses that they don't agree with. That's a mistake. And thus the Jews missed their first calling. They missed it when Messiah came the first time. Jesus even told them at one point, he said, you can look at the sky, and it's red, you know, there's a sky, a red sky, morning, sailor, take warning, red sky, at night, sailor is delay. You know, you can discern the sky, but you cannot discern the time in which you live. Why? Because they didn't take the scriptures for what it said. Oh, well, some of it they did. But then they spiritualized other parts of it. That was a problem. They shouldn't have done it. Look at verse 24. And he thus spake for himself, and as he was speaking, of course, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning hath made thee mad. When a person is beside themselves, it's a an earmark of a man having a conversation with himself. That's what it means. Now you realize if you're having a conversation with yourself, you've got a problem. You can ask yourself questions, but when you start answering them, that's an earmark of a mental problem. And this is what Festus was actually accusing Paul of. He's going, Look, you're beside yourself. Much learning hath made you mad. It has been suggested, and I don't doubt this for a moment, because Paul had been incarcerated within Festus, and you know, before that Felix, but he had been there for over two years. That Paul, even within his incarceration, we see through scriptures that he did have some liberty. I mean, they kind of, he had no charges against him. They, they confined him, but he was allowed to study. And so it's been suggested that Festus and even Felix before him had had the privilege of watching Paul study and how profuse at it he was. And he would just, you know, devour the books and the parchments, and he would study continually. And so Festus throws this out here much learning has made you mad. I like Paul, he wasn't mad. But in Second Timothy, and I think this is interesting because Timothy was his, uh, his son in the Lord. You know. I begotten thee in Christ. And, and he had taken great pains with Timothy and, and, and discipled him and put him in the ministry. So he writes to Timothy, and you can write it down. It's Second Timothy 4.13. And and, and he's writing to him, and this is, of course, one of his prison epistles, and this is while he's still in prison. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring that with you. And the books, and especially the parchments, even in his incarceration, even in his frigidness, of wanting to be cloaked with a coat, the most important thing to him wasn't the warmth of his body, but it was the warmth of his heart that would be found in the Scriptures. That's what he wanted. Bring the books, but especially the parchments. Bring them. If you don't bring anything else, bring them. Verse 15 of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, he would tell Timothy, study. Study to show thyself approved unto God as a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That is a verse that every Christian would do well to remember. Put it in your heart. You want a memorization scripture? If he doesn't have it, do that one. Study to show thyself approved unto God. As a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Why? Because there's a lot of works that are done, but they're not done scripturally. They're not done accurately. They're just done. Paul says, as a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's important. Look at verse 25. But of course, Paul says, I'm not mad, most noble Felix, or Festus, excuse me. He says, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth these things before whom I also speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. And if you're taking notes, look at his last statement. For this thing was not done in a corner. Paul's going, look, Agrippa, you know these things. He knew Agrippa was a student of the scriptures. He knew that Agrippa knew the prophets. He knew that Agrippa knew about Jesus Christ, about the crucifixion and how that related. He knew That Agrippa had at least partial knowledge. But Paul says this thing wasn't done in a corner. It wasn't hidden. You know, so often, I think in the mind of some people, they really believe that. That somehow, you know, this little sect of Christians, you know, kind of came up with all this fanciful stories about this guy named Jesus. And somehow it was done cloak and dagger. No, 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 no. It wasn't done in a corner. It was done in the open for the whole world to see. It wasn't done in secret. It was done openly. What Jesus did, he did for the whole world. And he did it openly. And Paul says this. It wasn't done in a corner. Look at verse 27. King Agrippus, believest thou the prophets? You notice there's a question mark there. Do you believe the prophets? And look what Paul says. I know thou believest. He puts him on the spot. I love that. He puts him on the spot saying, I know you believe. I know you do. I can only imagine how Agrippa was feeling at this moment. I want you to keep it in mind, gang, this this church service that's going on at this moment where Paul's preaching. Now, they don't know it's a church service, but it is. Because the Word of God is being proclaimed. Proclaimed. And it's being proclaimed by the greatest preacher that has ever lived. The greatest preacher that has ever lived. I mean, it's like Billy Graham on steroids. Paul the Apostle, the one who would go on to write two-thirds of the New Testament, who is the author, he said, I, my gospel... According to my gospel, he's the one who gave us the gospel of grace, the apostle Paul. This is the man who's preaching. And Agrippa's listening. And Festus, of course, is already tuned him out, calling him mad. But Agrippa's listening. And Paul says, you believe the prophets? I know you believe. I know you do. Then Agrippa said, verse 28, unto Paul, almost, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost. You know, there's an old joke. Almost only counts in hand grenades and horseshoes. Almost. There's even a song that we sing. Almost persuaded. Almost. What a scary thing to be almost persuaded. So close and yet so far away. There will be many, many people on that day standing before the great white throne who were almost persuaded. Almost. But what happened? Their intellect, they allowed their intellect to get in the way of faith. The Bible says God is long-suffering to us, not willing that any would perish, but that all should come to Repentance. The gospel, when it is taught accurately, is not something that asks you to believe blindly. You know, people think that that the gospel is, is a religion of blind faith. Not so. Jesus said, I've told you these things beforehand so that when they come to pass, you might believe. We're even told in the book of Acts in the very beginning that by many infallible proofs, Of course, the resurrection being the main infallible proof. But so often we allow intellect or we allow the persuasion of the world to come between us and the Holy Spirit, and those who would come almost come, but they can't take that next, that one little final leap of faith. It's sad. And Paul says there in verse 29, I would to God that not only thou, but also all they that hear me this day were both almost and all together such as I am except for these bonds. I wished you all were, he said. And of course he's there at that amphitheater there in Caesarea. And who knows how many were there, but there was many. Because it was a special day. The king was all, remember it was a gala everybody was dressed up in their finest and it was a mass mass of people and Paul was preaching and he says I would that you all were even as I am I love Paul so often you know people read and those who really don't understand his heart or maybe I should say they don't understand the heart of the of the gospel often mistake certain things that Paul says as being arrogant but it's not true You know, Paul uses terms like, my gospel. My gospel. And then he says, be as I am, brethren. Be as I am, and the Lord of peace will be with you. Do as I do. See, I don't take that as arrogance. I take that as confidence in the God that he served. Paul knew in whom he had served. He knew whose he was. He knew who he belonged to. And those statements were statements of encouragement to us. Be as I am, brethren, and the God of peace will be with you. Just do as I do. We should all be able to say that without any fear of sounding arrogant. Just do as I do. Verse 30. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up and the governor And Bernice, and they sat with him. And when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man has done nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then Agrippa said unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty had he not appealed to Caesar. Once again, God is in the details. It's not happenstance. Because some would read that and go, Man, Paul, you should have kept your mouth shut. You could have been free. But Paul knew what he was called to do. He had to go to Rome. Didn't matter how he got there. He had to go. And God was simply seeing to it that that's what was going to happen. Paul's on his way to Rome. He's on his way to preach to Caesar. But we read a statement like that. Well, he might have been put at liberty had he not appealed. Some people would probably say, wow, he should have shut up. He should have kept his mouth quiet. No. Agrippa wanted to let Paul go. But he had already appealed to Caesar. His course was already set. He was on his way to Rome, and so to Rome he will go. Verse 20, chapter 27. Verse 1. And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy... They delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustinian, or Augustus band. That's not a, not a rock and roll band or anything like that. It's a, you know, a group of men, uh, of centurions. You know, we're, in, we're introduced here to another Roman centurion whose name is Julius. And I do think it's interesting to note that within Scripture, several centurions are mentioned. And they're always mentioned in favorable terms honorable men you remember in the gospel there was a centurion who came to Jesus for healing on behalf of his own servant and he says you know I'm a man of authority I'm under authority and I have people that I have authority over and I say to this one man go and he goes and this man come and he comes I understand authority I know what it looks like and I know you have it he told Jesus so don't even come to my house I'm not really worthy so just say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word. Jesus said, I've not seen such faith. Not in Israel. Just say the word. So these centurions, honorable men. And Julius, of course, you know, is an honorable man. But it also reminds me of of, of the centurion, of course, who was at the, the crucifixion. You remember, he was the one who said, surely this was the Son of God. But this guy here, this Julius, he, uh, he takes a shine to Paul. Once again, the Lord working in the details, you see. Look at verse 2. And entering into a ship at Athedithium, we launched, and meaning to sail by the coast of Asia and Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica being with us. And the next day we touched at Sidon. And Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go unto his friends to refresh himself. And when he had launched from thence, we sailed unto Cyprus because the winds were contrary. Keep that in mind. And when we had sailed over the sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, the city of Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. And when we had sailed slowly many days... And scarce were come over against this, and the wind suffering us, not suffering us, excuse me, we sailed unto Crete. And Crete's an island, you know where it says it's right there in Greece, it's just down below. I actually have some friends who have a little store there on, on that island. Over against Salmon, and hardly passing it, and came unto a place which is called the Fair Havens. Nigh whereunto the city of Lysa, or Lysi. Now, when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them. Now, take note of what he tells them here. And said unto them, Sirs, I perceive. Now, if you take a note, you need to make note. Paul says, I perceive. Now, when Paul says, I perceive, he's not saying, well, according to my intuition. Here's what I think. Paul says, I perceive. When Paul says, I perceive, he's speaking by the revelation of the Spirit. He's he's, he's giving them something that's really directly from God. I perceive, he says, that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the landing or the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. Hmm. So sailing on the Mediterranean at this particular time was a very dangerous endeavor. Especially if you were going any time past October. The winds were absolutely crazy. The weather was absolutely nuts. And it was not safe and this is when the uh, winter storms would begin to uh, blow in. Look at verse 12. And because the haven was not commodious to winter in. Didn't have it very much uh, stuff to do there. In the more part advised uh, to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain Phoenice, and there to winter, which is the haven of, uh, haven of Crete, and lieth toward the south, West and Northwest. Yeah, So, the city was, it just wasn't large enough. These guys had sailors uh, with other people, with them, and they were going to have to, thank you, bless you, they were going to have to have a place to winter. And keeping sailors busy for a few months is not an easy thing. And so they wanted them to occupy them for a while. So, but The town they were in, they just didn't think it was going to be. They needed a bigger place. Look at verse 13. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, there arose against it a tempest wind, tempestuous wind. Some of your Bibles might say something different, called Eurocladon. Big wind is what it means. Big wind. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up in the wind, we let her drive. They just gave themselves to it and just didn't even try to fight it. And running under a certain island, which is called Clauta, we had much work to come by the boat. Which means they were running all over the deck trying to secure things. Now I want you to get this picture. Because as we begin to read what Paul starts to say here we can easily forget that he is speaking these things in the midst of a huge, huge storm. Now, if you've ever watched a television program and you've seen sailor movies, especially you know, old sailor movies, and there's a big wind and there's a huge storm, you'll notice that the rain is shooting sideways and there's no more sails and everything. This is, this, this is what's going on. This is a huge Tempetuous wind. It's huge. And so this is what's going on. It's just its devastating. And so the ship is going to go under some very, very, very bad time. Okay, here we go. And running under certain verses. Did I live off at 16? Thank you. And running under a certain island called Clada, which had uh, much had uh, worked by the boat. So they were, were going to start working on the boat, which when they had taken up, they used helps undergirding the ship and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands, struck sail, and were so driven. So they dropped the sails, is what he's saying, and they committed themselves to the storm. It's one of the first things you do. In order to keep the boat from breaking apart, they would undergird the boat. Now, Even undergirding doesn't necessarily work, especially back then. It was a last-ditch effort. That's what an undergirding was. They would take huge ropes. They would start in the front of it, and they would walk it down under the water. They would bring them up, and they would run several of them. They would put them together and put a winch between them, and they literally would winch that rope as tight as they could to kind of hug the hull of the boat to hope, hopefully, to try to help keep it together. So they're in a bad way. By the time you get to that point, Okay? It's a last ditch. It, it is a Hail Mary, is, is really what it is. And we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, and the next day lightened the ship. Now, keep it in mind, it didn't stop. It's not like this tempest stopped and they went, oh, well, let's lighten the ship now. No, they're going day after day. This is a big storm, and it's relentless, okay? And during these storms, certain things cannot happen. Feeding men is not one thing that doesn't happen during storms on a boat, especially when it's this bad. But they've already dropped the sails. They're undergirding the ship. It's looking really bad, and these guys are going to start fearing for their lives. And so they begin to lighten the ship, verse 19. And the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. Now I want you to keep this in mind. You know what tackling is, right? This is all the equipment that you need to hoist sails, to lash things down. This is, this is stuff you need. This is the stuff that is going to help you. If you were to make it through the storm, you would need that tackling. But tackling is heavy. Why would they want to lighten a ship? Actually, somebody asked me that. Well, when you've got waves that are blowing, and they're blowing hard, and the waves are beginning to blow up, you want to... It wouldn't have helped, but in their mind, they wanted to lighten the ship so that it would rest higher on the water, so that it would raise the keel level, so, that it, so the waves wouldn't come over, so it wouldn't flood the, the ship. Most of the time, it doesn't work, but it was a last-ditch effort. This is where they're at. So they're throwing over even the tackling of the ship. Verse 20, when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, once again, for many days. It's, it's relentless. It's just pouring. It's, it's, it's the wind. It's, I can't tell you. You've got to keep this in mind as we read this. All hope that we should be saved was taken away. So now they've reached the end. They, 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 all hope. All hope was lost. You get that, right? All hope was lost. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs! You should have listened to me. I love that. You should have hearkened unto me. Now, I want you to get this. When Paul comes, when he begins to say this, he's not having a casual conversation. This is in the middle of a storm. They've thrown everything over. They are fearful for their lives. They have given up hope that they'll even be saved. And what's Paul say? I told you. But he's screaming it at them. I want you to hear that he's yelling to get over top of the sound of the waves, of the wind. You should have listened to me and not have loosed from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. Now I heard somebody tell me one time and it's not good to say I told you so. Sometimes it is good to say I told you so. So that you don't make that mistake again, you need to listen when the Lord is speaking. Instead of waiting around to hear, I told you so, Paul throws it out there. They had lightened the ship, they had thrown the tackling over with their own hands. They were trying to get something, I mean, that they could have some hope. Maybe it raised the ship up high, maybe the waves went, but by this time, all hope was lost. There was no stars, no moon. They couldn't navigate. They knew not where they were at. Keep that in mind. The ship is being tossed. It's being torn apart. There's no navigation. There's nothing. They gave up navigating a long time ago when they said they just gave it to the wind. They had no idea where they were at. Couldn't see land. They couldn't see nothing. And then you got this apostle standing up and going, I told you. Should have listened, man. You should have listened. it says it after a long abstinence. Once again, as I told you, you can't feed sailors when the storm is blowing. So this isn't just a fast. You notice it says abstinence. It's not just a fast. It's a forced fast. But what I like about it is Paul made use of it. Paul turned it into a fast. Paul was praying. Verse 22. And now he says, I exhort you to be of good cheer." For there shall no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. Now I have to admit, at this particular moment, I'm sure that these sailors thought this man is out of his mind. Why? Because it's in the middle of everything that could possibly go wrong, has went wrong, it's going wrong, and they've already lost hope. They've already lost hope. They had no hope of being saved. And here's this crazy Jewish rabbi standing up telling them now, when, when he says, be of good cheer in the Greek, that word means to be happy. Remember that stupid song? Don't worry, be happy. You know? More accurately, more pointedly, it means to be merry. Be of good cheer. I'm sure that it didn't have that effect on them right away. They had no reason to be happy. Verse 23, look at this. He says, For there stood by me this night an angel of God, whose I am, and whom I serve. If you take a note, you need to mark those down. Whose I am. Paul said that there had been a messenger from God that came and stood by him. You remember one other time when Paul was in prison. Remember when he was locked up and the Lord himself came and stood by him. And told him, fear not. Be of good cheer, Paul. I've got something for you to do. And gave him a word. Well, this angel had given him a word. This angel had come and told him. There's a few things you need to know, Paul. Be of good cheer. Have some courage. Buck up, man. The Lord has something for you to do. I love the fact that Paul says, who I am, this whose I am, you know, that he was God's. There's an interesting passage in the Bible. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 2. You can write it down chapter 2, verse 19. And it says this, it says, nevertheless the foundation of God standeth sure having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are His, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The foundation of God standeth sure having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are Now, while it is absolutely more important than anything else in life that Christ knows you, it is equally important that we know that we're His. That we know that we're His. I was reminded when I was reading and I was preparing for this study, you know, the Apostle John, when he was just a young disciple... And then as years later, when he was penning his gospel, he referred to himself as that disciple whom Jesus loved. That disciple whom Jesus loved. I remember so many moons ago when I first began to study the scriptures as a young man. And I read that. And I realized that he was writing it about himself. I thought, man, that's, that's really cool. I love that. I thought, man, you know, he saw himself as different. He saw himself as set apart. He saw himself in a special place with the Lord. Was he? Absolutely. Not to the exclusion of the other disciples. They were in the same place. What was the difference? John knew it. That's all. John knew it. I'm not saying that the other disciples didn't recognize it. John knew it. And so he could easily say, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Paul said, there was an angel that stood by me, a messenger from God, whose I am. I belong to him. There's been times in my life, as a Christian, as a minister, as a preacher of the gospel, I've had to remind myself. That that's whose I am. Because the enemy will come in. And he will want to discourage you from that. He doesn't want you to recognize that. He wants to put that doubt in your mind. But Paul had no doubt. Whose I am. But it wasn't just who I am. It wasn't just I belong to the Lord. You see if that's all there is it's not enough. Oh, what do you mean, Doug? Because Paul goes on. He says, whose I am and whom I serve. So often, we want to claim that, you know, we're, we belong to the Lord. We just don't serve him, you see. He doesn't really have any other place in our life. Oh, we go to church. Might be there every time the doors are open. But boy, when it comes out of here, when we're all alone, all by ourselves heard an old preacher say one time. Whatever you are when you're by yourself, when it's just you and Jesus, make no mistake, that's who you really are. You can fool me. You can preach me a sermon maybe it's better than one I can do, and I'm pretty good at it. You can put on an air, but whatever you are in secret, that's what you really are. So wherever you're at, you see when the storm and the tempest is blowing when the boats falling apart when you've tossed the tackle overboard that's who you really are that's who you really are and Paul was there and what did he say that angel stood by me from God whose I am and whom I serve I'm here I'm serving the Lord I'm doing what he's called me to do look at verse 40 of 24 And Paul says, saying, here's what what this angel says to him, saying, Fear not Paul. Thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Oh man, think about that. Here's Paul, the apostle. He eventually will write two-thirds of the New Testament. Here's the man who gave us the gospel of grace. Here's the man who had more wisdom than probably any apostle before him, even though he said he was the least of them. I think God thought otherwise. And yet here he is, and this angel tells him what, the very often, the first thing out of his mouth, he says what, fear not. And why would he tell Paul to fear not if Paul was not fearful? Because he was fearful. He was. At that moment. In the midst of this When this tumultuous storm, they had thrown everything over. Even Luke, when he wrote, says, we had even given up any hope of being saved. He was at his wit's end. And Paul feared. And this angel says, fear not. Fear not. So often, we can let the calamities of life instill fear into us. Things happen. Whatever that tempest is in your life. And I know we've all been through our storms. Some of it is sickness. Some of it can be a, it can be a plethora of things. It doesn't really matter what that storm is. And sometimes well meaning friends you see will come along and they'll say, It'll be okay. Be of good cheer. Take heart. Unfortunately, sometimes they say that and even they themselves don't believe that you're going to beat that cancer. They're just trying to make you feel better when you die. That might sound harsh, but I'm being honest. You see, it's not enough to tell somebody to fear not or to buck up, be of good courage when there's no reason for it. There has to be a reason for it. Don't just tell me it's all going to be okay. How do you know that? How do you know it's going to be okay? How do you know? Don't tell me what you feel. Man, I hate it when Christians do that. How many times I've had people come to me for counseling. Well, I feel what? Don't tell me what you feel. Tell me what you know. What do you know? you are not called to walk by feelings. We're called to walk by faith. My feelings will lie to me. Believe me, I've had them lie to me. Your feelings have lied to you. So often people say, oh, man, my feelings, you know, I, I just go by my feelings. Well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Boy, if you were suffering because we're coming up here on January, you got way behind in your taxes. You may have heard that I used to own a business and I was pretty successful, and you'd be right. You might come to me and say, Doug, I'm $10,000 behind in my taxes and as a brother in the Lord. Think you could see it yourself... To Help me out. And I might just say, Well, sure. Let me write you a check for that. Here you go. Man, you'd be happy. You'd even walk out of there praising the Lord until you got to the bank <laughs> and tried to cash that thing and realized that Doug gave all of his money to the Lord a long time ago. And you'd go from being happy. To being sad so fast, it wouldn't be funny. And that's why you don't want to put any stock in feelings. Feelings a lie to you. They're no good. Tell me what you know. What do you know? I don't want somebody to come into me in one of my worst times, in my tempest, in my storm. I don't care what that thing might be. I had a time when I thought I was dying. The doctors thought I was dying. I wanted somebody to come to me and tell me what they knew. Tell me what you feel. This angel stood by Paul and told him, be of good cheer. But he didn't say it to cheer him up. Because he backed it up with something that was tangible. He said, for you have to go to preach to Caesar. You've got to go to Rome, Paul. What did he do? He simply took Paul and reminded him of a promise that God had already made to him. That's all it took. You've got to go, Paul. Be of good cheer. He didn't say buck up. It's going to be okay. And then leave. He said be of good cheer. Don't fear. For you must go and preach to Caesar. The Lord had already told him. You see, at those times when the tempest is blown, when, when, when the when the diagnosis comes back and it's not good, you've got to reach for the promises of God because God is faithful. The Lord always keeps his word. It's those times you don't want to walk by feelings. You want to walk by faith. You want to walk by what you know, not by what you feel. Because at that moment, you might not be feeling too well, you see. Paul wasn't feeling too well at that moment Till this angel reminded him of the reason that he needed to have hope. There is reason for hope. Why? Because God has already said, you're going to Rome. Remember? Oh, that's right. That's right. And so he begins to speak with confidence. And he even tells the man, look at verse 25, wherefore, sirs? And he's yelling this gang. I want you to realize it's over top of the storm. Paul is yelling this at them. Be of good cheer, for I believe God. Man, I love that. He's not telling them to be of good cheer, just to cheer them up. He's saying this is what the Lord has said that I have to go to Rome. I have to go. There's not going to be any loss of life. We're all we're going to lose the ship. We might even get wet, but be of good cheer, for I believe God. I believe the Lord. Today, there's a lot of voices within Christendom, not all of them good, that tell us a lot of things. I want to listen to voices that tell me what God has to say. Give me his word. I remember when we moved into the big building at Calvary Chapel. And a young man who had been in the fellowship for a, a, quite a while by that time. And I had met him when he was 18. I got reacquainted with him, as a matter of fact, this last Thanksgiving. This one had just passed. Hadn't seen him in seven, seven years, I think. But I remember he was painting the, the, the doorway of Calvary Chapel. And he was doing this fancy scroll work up on top of it. It was really cool. And he says, is there anything you want up there, Pastor? And I said, yeah. I said, he sent his word. And he, I don't know about you. But every time I've been at that place where the storms were beating, and I've been through a few. I'm sure you have too. We all have. Some of those storms are pretty bad. But during those times, it was the Word of God that gave me hope, that restored my hope. It was the Word of God. I didn't need somebody coming to me and going, oh, brother, it'll be okay. I mean I understand they mean well don't, you know, don't think I don't understand it I do but if you want to come to me and tell me it's going to be okay give me a reason quote me some word remind me of the promises of God because it's at those times that we need it we need it Paul said I believe God and I'm going to quote, close with this that word belief here when he says I believe God That's the same Greek word that's used in John 3.16 when Jesus said, Whosoever believeth on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It means to commit the well-being of your soul to Christ. That's what that word means. To rely on, to trust in, to cling to him. Because the other belief that's used in the Bible is the word, it means to acknowledge with the mind that something is true. But this word means to commit the keeping of your soul to the Savior. The same word that Jesus used in John 3.16 when he was talking to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, whosoever believeth and would not perish but have everlasting life. This is is what that word means. And Paul was clinging to I believe God. I hope you do too. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can count on it, that it is refreshing even in the midst of a storm, Lord. Regardless of what that storm is, Father, that we can bank on your word even when it seems like the inevitable is quite the contrary. We thank you for it. Lord, Father, I pray for those who we're listening, and those who will be listening, Lord Father, to this sermon, that I, I pray that whatever storm they're in, that they would take heart, Lord, not because I'm trying to cheer them up, but because of your word and the promises that you have given, Lord Father. Because that's what we know. We don't have to walk by feelings, Lord Father. We walk by faith, and we believe you. We love you, and we thank you, and we. Ask you this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.